Jewish audio on Chabad.org. So, we're up to our fifth installment in Megillah Esther, and today we are going to conclude chapter one, and Be'ezrat Hashem, we are going to begin chapter two as well. Let's just bring everybody up to date. The last thing that has happened is Achashverosh in his unbelievable 180-day party, which is designed, as we explained, to reorganize Persian governance and society, he now sets out to demote the queen. Because, as you will remember, the queen actually has royal blood. She's a granddaughter of the Vukhadnezar. So the queen says, you're a king because I am the queen. Achashverosh doesn't like that. He says, I am the king because I am the megalomaniac, because I control everything. And he figures he's be he better humble Vashti, because now that he's humbled all the ministers and the courtiers and the princes of the land, he better make sure to humble his wife and get his wife under control, so she should not get in his way, and then he can do whatever he wants. So he has an order, and he sends it in the hands of regular courtiers that uh, she should appear, and she should appear in a state of disrobement, or no robes whatsoever, and in this way she'll be, you know, it's like demeaned, appropriately demeaned, and everybody will be entertained, so that the crowd will be delighted. He'll be happy because she's demeaned, and he put her in her place, and life is great. And then he can move on to establish his kingdom as he desires. <laughs> but Vashti is not playing along. She says, you're crazy. He's drunk, the king. I'm not coming naked. Forget about it. He can disrobe if he wants. And now he's got a real problem. He was afraid of the queen challenging him. Now she challenged him. He's a paper tiger, or not. He doesn't know what to do. He's fuming. And he calls together his advisors. And, and he says, what do we do here now? This is my whole plan is now all of a sudden impeded. All the things that I had in mind are coming to a grinding halt. This is going to retard all of that development in Ahasuerus, what he considered a positive direction. So, the, 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 the scripture at this point introduces us to a fellow whose name is Memuchan. Memuchan is one of seven courtiers. You'll, you'll realize the Malbim says he doesn't call together the Senate. He doesn't call his parliament together. He doesn't call the people who are wise and understand the mores of the land and the ethos of and the, the politics of civilization. He doesn't call those people because those are the people who usually keep a king in check. He doesn't want to hear from them. He wants to call his yes people, his cronies together. So he calls his cronies. And Memuchan gives him this idea that you should probably get rid of the queen. And then everybody will know. You'll, you'll teach her a lesson. Not only will you teach her a lesson, you'll teach a lesson that will be felt, its reverberations will be felt throughout the kingdom, and this will further establish your power base. In two ways, as you'll see. So the, the last thing we, the last Pasuk we learned together was Pasuk Yotes, the 19th uh, verse of chapter 1. Memuchan talks about a Dvar Malchut. A Dvar Malchut literally means a royal edict. A royal edict, as uh, we understood, means the things that only are in the hands of true royals, true monarchs, life and death. It's a, a kind of a, a veiled suggestion, but not so, not, so, not so vague. It's pretty clear veiled suggestion that Achashverosh should have her head and that uh, Malchuta, her her position as queen of the empire will go to somebody else. Obviously, she's not going to go into exile and be quiet. 
It's very clear that what he means is the full elimination of Vashti. Now, we, we, we kind of stopped, we got stuck in the middle. We're, we're now continuing Mamukhan's advice. He says, once you do this, Venishma Pidgam HaMelech, then the, the decision, the edict of the king is going to be heard. Asher Yaase, which the king has done, is going to be heard Bechol Malchuto, throughout the kingdom. Ki Rabo He. For, although it is a very large kingdom, word will get out. And what will be the result of this saga of the queen who disobeyed the king who had her head handed to her? Now, all of the women are going to respect the husbands. So Ahasuerus, one of the things that he seeks to do here is to subjugate the women of the kingdom. And the bigoted men of ancient Persia were delighted to have women subjugated. This is great. Put them back in their box. They were starting to come out of their box. And now with Vashti's disobeying of the king, they're going to be emboldened. He says, don't worry. If you get rid of her, now all the women are going to be put in their place. So all the men are going to become Ahasuerus' big supporters. So he just bought the entire population. The, vo- the people who have a voice, he just got their support. They'll all be forced to give honor to their husbands, Lemigadol, Viad Katon, from big to small. There's a, quite a bit to understand in this verse. Let's, let's take it from the top. First of all, Venishma Pidgam HaMelech. The edict of the king is, is going to be heard. So the first question is, what is a Pitgam? This is the word that we do not see previously in the scripture. So Ibn Ezra says, Kamay Devar. The, the word, which, in, if you're a king, it's not just, it doesn't just give a word, it becomes an edict. And he says that this is in a number of other languages. The word pitgam shows up in other Semitic languages also. It's r- meaningful for me to tell you uh, at this point that sometimes we have in the writings of Rashi, and more rarely in the writings of Ibn Ezra, but also sometimes a cross-reference to other Semitic languages. Which is not to say that Hebrew doesn't have words or that the Hebrew language can only be understood when you frame or contrast it with other languages when you, when you understand Hebrew dialectically. That's not correct. Rather, that there are certain words in the Hebrew language which, for whatever reason, fell into disuse. Because that's the nature of spoken languages. That certain words become popular, and certain words simply fade into oblivion. And sometimes words change meaning altogether. So, so at times, says the Shalah, in his commentary, and Parsha's boy, when we talk about the word totafot, that Rashi says is Coptic and African, he says that these words, for whatever reason, became less used in Hebrew, but they remained, for whatever reason, they lingered on in other languages. So if you want to understand ancient Hebrew, sometimes you have to analyze another language. There's a, a very well-known professor who comes here usually on an annual basis, who was here a little while ago, Mordechai Kadar. So he told me this amazing thing. The Mishnah says that it's a mitzvah letayel basukah. Now, letayel in Hebrew means take a tour, which makes no sense. How do you take a tour of your sukkah? I mean, how big is your sukkah? <laughs> sukkah has to be enough to house a person. So he says that the word talala in Arabic means to spend time. And he suggested to me that for whatever reason, letayel got lost with the Hebrew language, but it has stuck around in Arabic. So we can understand from the 
many, many words in Arabic are similar, very similar to the Hebrew. They sound similar, they're spelled similar, the spelling. So if you look at the Arabic conjunction, you can understand. It makes sense now. L'tayel means to spend time. For whatever reason, that word kind of fell into disuse. But that's not to mean that the Mishnah used an Arabic word. It means the Mishnah used a Hebraic word, which, for whatever reason, we don't have anymore. Anyways, Ibn Ezra was a master of language. He says that in, in other languages, we have, we, have, we have similar things. And we also find, as he says in the scripture in, in Kohelet, we also find this as well. We find this word. Rare, but we find the word. In the general, the prose of the Megillah is very unique. It's like a unique poetic kind of prose in the way it's written. Now the next question we have here is, so the royal edict is going to be heard throughout the kingdom. Why? Because the king will make sure it's heard throughout the kingdom. Like, that's not really a question. The, the, the challenge of understanding this verse is the words, ki rabba hi, because it is great. What does that mean? It will be heard throughout the kingdom because it is great. Why is the size of the kingdom a cause for the edict being heard? And anyway, what difference does it make? We know that it's a great kingdom. We already heard that there's 127 provinces or countries that have been hammered together to form what may have been the largest empire of its, of, uh, ever at the time. An enormous empire that Ahasuerus presided over. This is the, the Babylonian empire that's vanquished by the Persians and further solidified with adding, adding other promises. We're, we're talking about all the way down to India. We dominated Eurasia, Africa. Every, it's a huge, enormous empire. So we know that it's big. What's Kirabahi? You said that it will go, Bechol Machuto. Yeah, okay, so we know it's big. So actually, there's a very interesting expression that's found in the Gemara. The Gemara says that there's a dispute between Rav and Shmuel what this means. Rav and Shmuel, by the way, were two great sages who lived in Bavel, in Babylon, and they were usually at each other's throats, intellectually. <laughs> they argue in many, many things. Rav was Rosh Hashiva in Surah, Shmuel was Rosh Hashiva in Pompadisa. These are the two, two great centers of learning. And actually, uh, Rav studied under the tutelage of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. He's, he was, this, this is the very like, or under the tutelage of Rabbi Yochanan for sure. This is the first generation of what we call Amaroim, sages from the Gemara. Not from the Mishnah, this is the beginning of the next, the next era. So we have Rav and Shmuel. Chadam, our one says, Hada malchuta rabba lahadein chet. Vachadamar hadein cheta rabba lahadein malchuta. This is very interesting. One says that this was a big deal for the kingdom. So the, the big deal is on the deal, is the, the, the behavior of Vashti and the subsequent punishment of Vashti. That was a big deal. It was a big deal for the kingdom. This is going to be something very big. It's going to make a huge impact. Everybody's going to hear about it. Another way of understanding it is that it's, it's a large kingdom and that the emphasis is on the large kingdom. It's like for such a big kingdom that this should become an issue is, is strange. It's, it's, in other words, the kingdom is so large and that this should become a dominant issue is, is, is the surprising thing here. But either way, according to Rav or Shmuel, whether it was the issue that was enormous, an oversized issue, or the kingdom that was oversized, this was going to get out. It was clear, Memuchan was convinced that this would get out. <coughs> Everybody would know. Ibn Ezra, by the way, just says in a level of pshat, even though it's a very large kingdom, 
word will get out. Which, it doesn't uh, take away from the words of the Gemara. It just says that the Gemara can be understood either way. What, what, what was large, what was big, what was oversized can be an issue of dispute. The point is, despite the fact that this may have been a very large kingdom, and it wasn't such a big a deal, or despite the fact that this is a huge deal, maybe oversized, at any rate, it would get out. It would get out. This is going to be a big deal. So Mamukhan is an expert spin doctor. He understands the media. He understands public opinion. He knows what people are going to twig on to. He knows what they're going to say, oh, look at that. And that's going to become, all of a sudden, a watershed point, a paradigm shift within the larger ripples of that, that go across the entire empire. So this is his suggestion to Achashverosh. Now, why, why, is this, um, why is this so meaningful? The Malbim explains that this is exactly the point. This is what exactly what Achashverosh wanted. He wanted to redefine the society. He wanted to redefine the culture. So here, he's at uh, it's this, 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 this inner tension. On one hand, he doesn't want to kill his wife. He loves his wife. On the other hand, he loves himself even more. And he loves what he wants to do. So his, here he's now having a, a clash between his ambitions and between his marriage. What will take greater precedence? Because Ahasuerus was hoping that people are going to say, well, you know, it's the queen, so it doesn't matter, we have to overlook it. And Mamukhan says to him, this is a golden opportunity to do exactly, these are your ambitions. You wanted to redefine the whole society. Now you're going to redefine society. This is a big deal. You'll show them, and everybody will be on your side. All the men will rally around you now. You'll have the power base. The whole kingdom is going to be delighted with you. Think about, I told you before about Hitler, the paradigm of Hitler, when he tried to, he reorganized German society. This is, this is the perfect, you could say, Mamukhan is like Goebbels. He's packaging this. He said, this is a perfect opportunity for us to be able to repeat something, even though it's ridiculous and makes no sense, and even though she's blameless and faultless, it doesn't make a difference. We're going to cre create the storyline. We're going to be the ones who are disseminating the storyline. So we're calling the shots. We'll, we'll, we're going to make sure it's heard the way we want it to be heard, and therefore, we are going to bring forth this kind of societal reaction. And Achashverosh, in the end, chooses ambition over his wife. He says, and, and Muchan says, wife, shmife, you get another one, big deal. Who cares? You never get another chance to redefine the kingdom. This is you. This is who you are. This is, this is everything you, you've, you've, you've looked for. So Achashverosh hears these words, and guess what? He's very happy. He says, oh, I like this. this. This is good. We continue now in verse 20. Verse 21, The king likes this. And in the eyes of the king, and in the eyes of the courtiers. And so, the king decided, at this point, he did like what Memuchan suggested. Now, Megillah's Starim says something that feeds into the same, same idea of Ahasuerus trying to disable and emasculate the nobility, the ministers. He didn't listen to the Supreme Court. He didn't listen to the judges. He didn't listen to the wise people. He took a guy who was in the bottom of the heap named Memuchan, and he elevated him, and he said, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to get consent from the House of Lords or House of Commons or whatever you want to call it. I can do whatever I want to do. 
So if Memuchan's words make sense to me, I can elevate Memuchan, make him, who was later going to become the Prime Minister, by the way, Memuchan, as you may have figured out, is Haman. This is Haman's meteoric rise, overnight. Haman is going to become promoted to Prime Minister, the second in command, and Achashverosh just run rough, roughshod over everybody else. And this puts in place the entire miracle that's later going to unfold. As we have a fascinating um, statement from our sages that says that this whole business, uh, the Gemara the, the Megillah says, Not for this first letter, the Jewish people would have been gone. We never would have made it. The, the first letter, Achashver sends out these letters telling everybody Vashti. Why? What is the Pshat here? He said, the Gemara says, what is his letter? His letter was, Lehiyot Kalish Sorebeveto. Let's go on to verse 22. We're going to revisit these verses in a minute. Verse 22 says, Vayishlach Svarim Akom Medinot He sends out um, documents or books to all the uh, provinces of the king. El Medina o Medina Kichtava. He sends to each province or country in its own language. Vil Am Va'am Kilshono. So he's not only using language, he's using syntax. We have a redundancy over here. He's using everybody, he's using their own script, their own, alph their own alphabet, their own language, their own milieu. You know, there are different countries that speak English and we have word, different words for different things. He identifies each province, each country, treats them as a part of the mosaic. He's not treating them as part of Persian society. He's doing away with Persian dominance. This is not the the empire of Persia, this is the empire of Ahasuerus. And in Ahasuerus' empire, multiculturalism is a wonderful thing. Because if we have nationalism, that everybody has to become Persian, so then it's Persia, it's not Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is just occupying the throne of Persia. But if he lets everybody speak their own language and he does away with this overarching power which is called Persia, but he dominates all of them, so then they are part of whose empire? You're now in the land of Achashverosh. Understand the, the, the brilliance of what he's doing over here? And this will be, will make Kolish Sorer Beveto. Each man will be the master in his own household. Umedaber Kilshon Amo and speak the language of his own people, which we're going to go into the details in a moment. So, the Gemara says, if not for this letter, these letters were sent out, the Jewish people would have no hope. They would have been doomed. And the Gemara says, I mean, if you look at this culture of the day, there's nothing new about this letter. That every man is king in his own castle. They were saying that as uh, 80 years ago, that was still a popular refrain. Every man is king in his own castle. And the language of the Gemara is a little different. This is, Even a, uh, is a bald guy. Like a loser. Even a loser, he's a policeman in his own house. That, that's the literal translation. So, it's like everybody in his own house is in charge. What, what was the point of this letter? The whole letter doesn't even make any sense. He didn't say anything, really. But what is the Gemara saying? The al explains that the Gemara is telling us something very, very powerful here. Imagine if Ahasuerus would have been a normal king. So, normal kings have to consult, as we said, with their parliaments, with their senates, with their nobility. So, there would be, let's say, you would manage to push through an edict a final solution. So, and then all of a sudden, your wife says to you, what are you doing? That's my people. Okay, no final solution. Do you think he'd be able to just pull that off? 
single-handedly? No, he would have had to go and call the whole powerful bodies together and start lobbying. You see, he just worked for, for months and months on trying to re-educate everybody that the Jew is the most horrible creature on the face of the earth and they'll be the biggest favor for the world if we get rid of the Jew. And then an hour, a few months later, on the whim, you decided that the Jew is fantastic? How are you going to be able to turn everything around? If Ahasuerus would have been a normal king who had to go through due process, the reversal could never have happened with the speed and the alacrity that it needed to have happened. That's why we have the first chapter. The Alshuk says that's what the whole first chapter is doing. It's explaining to you how Ahasuerus dismantled Persian society. He destroyed the traditional governance. He enshrined himself as the center of the universe. That he could do, by the word of the king, anything could happen. And once he enshrined himself that way, he could say one day kill all the Jews. The next day he sends out a new letter, all the Jews are free to kill everybody who doesn't like them. There's no problem. In other words, this letter was the source of it all. And the amazing thing is Vashti was the biggest anti-Semite who hated the Jews and her death becomes, in the end, the catalyst for the Jewish people's salvation. Because they get rid of her. Esther Hamalka is going to come in instead. And, and precisely with the letter that was written about her punishment, there was the seed of the redemption. That's how Hashem put in place the possibility of the miracle of Purim, which is Benehepachu, everything was turned upside down in a moment. So we have now a, a, a much better understanding, I think, of this, the whole first chapter of the Megillah, which seems to have nothing to do with the Megillah. What's to what's do with the story of Purim? Well, so the Medrash tells us that the Jewish people sinned, that the party is a description of the sin of the Jewish people, and that's why they got into this pickle to begin with. And they had to do tshuva. This was the lowest ebb of their assimilation, that they <coughs> lost all sense of national dignity and pride, as we learned, to the point that they were participating in a meal, in a feast, which mocked the very core essence of the Jewish people. Ahasuerus was walking around wearing the raiments of the high priest, mocking and laughing everything that was holy to Jews. And the Jews had no self-respect. And they participated in this party. And they weren't even forced to eat not kosher. But in the end, they elected to eat not kosher food on Shabbos from the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash. So that's, that's how we understand the story. But now we're understanding even more so, we understand the deeper schematic behind this whole party. What Ahasuerus was trying to do. What he, why he wanted Vashti to parade around like a stripper. Why, she, why her refusal was such a problem for him. And why her death and subsequent, and, and subsequent publicization of it set in motion what could later bring about the salvation of the Jewish people. Which is pretty cool. So, when you know what's going on behind the literal verses. Let's just take a look at, at, um, at Rashi for a moment. So Rashi says, Medaber kilashon amo. That everybody will speak their own language. What does that mean? He says, Kofa et ishto lilmod et lashono. Since we have a... Um, a new country, with many countries, many provinces that have been hammered together into this new empire. So invariably there's going to be people getting married to people from different places. There's like, forget free trade agreements, we're all the same country, we all have the same passports, right? We're all paying tribute and tax to the same place, we all have to follow the same laws. Invariably, you're going to have these matches start springing up. So then comes the question, whose customs do we adopt? This is like the endless fights, every time people get married. Who... <laughs> Whose shul do we go to? Your shul or my shul? Who's, how do we cut the challah? Your way or my way? And so on and so forth. You know, this, this becomes like the whole issue. And then there's going to be, whose language are we going to speak? How are we raising the children? Who's, whose language will, will the household function according to? Ahasuerus put his foot down and said, a man's going to be in charge. Which as the Gemara says, I mean, any, any way, like, you know, the idea of the surname being the, ma the, ma the man's surname, that was 
It's been that way for like a long time. It was probably even most common at the time. But Achashverosh made this whole issue out of it, and he says, Kofet Ishto. Now he can force his wife, Lumadit Lashona. She has to learn his language if she is a Bat Lashona if she speaks a different language, if she comes from a different place. So Achashverosh is a bigot. He doesn't like the Jews. That's, that's very clear. He's also a sexist. He hates women, can't stand women. He wants to put them down. He can't stand his own wife because she has something over that he doesn't have. He's a nobody. He's a mutt. He comes from, from, from nowhere, rises to prominence overnight, marries a very famous woman who has royal lineage, and now he feels there's a chip on his shoulder because <laughs> he got there because of her. So he has to get rid of her. And then he gets rid of her. Now life has been wonderful. Now he has established himself as the true king of this new empire. A little bit of, um, a little bit of some fascinating background from, from the Malbim, who, who really he puts this together in an extraordinary way. Malbim says like this. He says, "What, what is this? This you know you, you learn in 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 pasuk chaf in the twentieth verse this big deal of everybody is going to hear about this. It's going to be a great story." He says, this is lunacy. The man is going to be looked at as a, a mashugana. He killed his wife. Why? Because she wouldn't be demeaned? Like, why does he think this is going to earn him points? Why does he think it's going to earn anybody's respect in this? And women will learn to respect a husband because the king is a lunatic? How, how is this going to work for anybody? And what's migadol v'ad katon, from big to small? So the Malbim says like this. The only way to understand what happened there and the way this verse is constructed is to appreciate the background that we have already introduced. First of all, we see that the king is acting unilaterally, as I said. And the Pisgam HaMelech is going to show from now on it is the king who makes decisions, not the House of Lords, not the Parliament, even though Mordechai is a member of that parliament, and we hear about people who are involved, it doesn't matter, he says. These people ultimately are not the ones who are going to call the shots. Who calls the shots? The king and the king alone. In other words, like Megillus, uh, uh, the Stardom says, this is the full dictatorship. How did the Nazis establish their power? How did they terrorize the population into doing what they wanted? They terrorized them. There's a story in 1939, they came into a village. They arrested some of the prominent members. They locked them. They took them into a building. They slaughtered several geese. And they walked out covered in blood. And the whole population was terrified. They never killed these people, by the way. Later on, they had no problem killing people. In the beginning, they weren't so comfortable just slaughtering people. They took them away to jail. But they walked out covered in blood. So the people were terrified by what they saw. And they just did everything they were told afterwards. It's a, it's a, it's a terrorist tactic. Achashverosh terrorized the people. By the way... Um, that dictator from North Korea. What's his name? Kim Jong-jun, whatever. The beloved leader. The lunatic leader. He, he just like executed his uncle. Right? There's like whole stories about it. He had dogs eat him up. Somebody thought it's not true. Anyway, the point is, this, this is how these megalomaniacs work. They, they, they take somebody, usually a relative of theirs, they make an example of that relative, and then everybody else is terrified of them. So at the same time, they love Ahasuerus. They're absolutely terrified of this guy. He can do whatever he wants with no compunction. You're going to step out of line, you'll be dead. I mean, a man who killed his wife is not going to have a problem killing you. That's the message that comes across. 
And besides this, he said, since it's going to be sent out as a royal edict, he's going to curry favor with all the husbands. So he's going to get popular support at the same time. And he'll make sure that this is enshrined as a new part of the civilization that he's in. So this is what Memuchan, Memuchan is Haman. Haman is a very smart guy. Haman understands Achashverosh. He gets it. They're on the same page. Memuchan wants to take a ride. He wants to rise to meteor greatness together with Achashverosh. He has a mind to be the prime minister. So he says to him, very, very subtly, he describes exactly what he knows Achashverosh is really trying to do. He doesn't tell him, I know what you're doing. He describes what would happen. But this is feeding into exactly what Achashverosh was thinking. Achashverosh said, I like this guy. <laughs> I like him. He's good. This man is smart. He's a smart fellow. He says, this way, I will have mamlocha bilti mugbelet. Now I have unbridled powers. Now nobody can stand in my way. I don't need haskamat hasarim. I don't need to have the agreement of our parliament or of a senate. I don't need anybody to tell me that it's okay or that it fits into some kind of mores or ethos of this is what we do in Persia. No. This is what Achashverosh does. I don't care what we do in Persia. It's not, Persia is no longer an issue. Whatever the previous kings did is irrelevant. This is how we do it now. That's, that, that's the approach of Achashverosh. And that's, that's, that feeds into his, his idea of being able to tell this to everybody. He sends this out, this message, and he says, really, by the way, the Migadol Ve'ad Katon is understood like this. In some ways, Achashverosh was smaller than his wife. She had the royal blood and he didn't. But that didn't stand in his way. He's sending a, sending a message then. doesn't matter if she's more talented than you, or smarter than you, or richer than you, or comes from a better place. doesn't matter. The guy is the boss. So, how did they think the peasants felt about that? They were delighted. A bunch of bigots, a bunch of sexists. They were, they were, they were, they were overjoyed with this new, new idea, this new, this new emperor of theirs. And the Malbim explains in great detail why when it comes to the letters, the, the Megillah is very specific. It says he sent Medina u Medina Kichtava. He used its alphabet. In other words, in other words the, 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 the actual message that was being conveyed was less relevant than the way it was being conveyed. As the Gemara says, the Gemara mocks the message. The, Gemara says, the message is not a message. It didn't really make that much of a difference in people's everyday life. But Achashver sent them a message, and the message was, you don't have to be Persian. You can remain exactly who you are, which is unprecedented. Every empire tried to force the people to accept its customs. Think of the Soviet Union. Everybody had to speak Russian. The Latvians couldn't speak Latvian, the Estonians couldn't speak Estonian, the Ukrainians couldn't speak Ukrainian. Everybody had to speak Russian. That was the national language. Everybody had to learn the same, the same uh, style, the same way. It was all, there was a national program. If you didn't like that, you didn't stick around. Or at least if you, you, know, you couldn't go anywhere, unless you wanted to go to Siberia, and you generally didn't come back from there. Was, they, they, it, Stalin was very ruthless in establishing that monarchy. Achashverosh, you, you'd say, what is, he, what is he, crazy? Why is he encouraging this multiculturalism? Why is he encouraging individual languages? And the answer is because that's the only way Achashverosh can get rid of the Persian flavor of the empire. As long as the empire is Persian, he is the emperor of Persia. Once it's not Persia, Persia is just another vassal state, another part of Achashverosh's empire, as I said before, now it's the country of Achashverosh. 
Where did all the noble people come from? Where did all the powerful people come from? Persia. From Persia. Because it's the Persian Empire. So Ahasuerus dismissed them in a, in, in a brilliant move by sending letters to everybody that weren't, weren't in Persian. He said, I don't care. I don't have to follow your nimusim, your etiquette. I don't have to follow your laws. It's irrelevant to me. Which also meant that each person could be king in his own castle, so to speak. He, he, he underscored and he emphasized the importance of each individual. Every country, every civilization. Sure, have your civilization. You're, you're the king in your country. You're the king in your neighborhood. You're the king in your province. And you're the king in your house. And you can do as you please. So long as you remember I'm the boss. That was the message that he sent to everybody. The, the Malbim says, if the king hadn't had such a, a manic kind of ambition to control everybody and everything, he never would have done something so stupid as killing his wife. This, it's un, unprecedented. It doesn't make sense. Henry VIII fell in love with another woman. Okay, he's a, a lowlife. Ashverosh <laughs> loved his wife and didn't want any other woman. And, and he made an, a ridiculous demand of her. He wouldn't have done what she did. Or vice versa. He wouldn't have agreed to do it either. So, so why in heaven would he bother doing something so crazy, killing his wife? And you see later he has tremendous pangs of regret. He's not happy about it later. And the answer is we see here his unbridled ambition to become the monarch of everything. Which now when you look back at the Gemara, it all comes together. You understand why and how Ahasuerus operated, which ultimately leads, as we mentioned, to the transformation of the miracle of Purim. All right, so let's go into chapter 2. So Vashti is gone now. And Ahasuerus has accomplished his goals. But, after all of this transpired, Ahasuerus is unhappy. Ahasuerus' anger subsides. Zohar as Vashti. He began to remember and think of Vashti. And what she had done. He probably thought to himself, <laughs> could I blame her? What was I thinking? That wasn't really fair. He remembered what had been decreed upon her. What had been decreed upon her? The Gemara says, which is the closest to the guillotine. Even though the guillotine was invented by Charles Guillotine, but uh, <laughs> discus is like a revolving blade, a sharp blade. So he remembered all this. He killed her in a horrible way, and now he feels bad. It's, by the way, the Medrash Rabbah says, Kol makam shenemar acharei is samoch, it's immediate. Whenever it says achar, it's muflag. There was a good period of time. This didn't happen the next day. He was in his, in his, in his, in his anger and his emotion. He was convinced he did the right thing and the smart thing, and he was very happy and very, very, very pleased with his, with his actions. But then, as time went on, all of a sudden he felt lonely. He remembered her beauty, as we're going to see. He remembered her charisma. And what did I do this for? Let's take a look in Rashi now. Rashi says, what did he remember? Zachar is Vashti. Esyofya. He remembered her beauty. Remember, this guy was not exactly a, a, a highly moral individual. It's not like he said, Oi, I feel bad I killed somebody. He said, I need my beauty. <laughs> where's, my, where's my fun? He felt this, this bothered him. In other words, don't think this is a tshuva, like he's a nice person. He felt bad, you know, like a, 
is a monster. He's a, a, a megalomaniac who is a baltaiva, his, his insatiable drive for, for sensual libido and pleasure. So he remembered her. All he remembered was her beauty. And that's what he felt bad about. The um, Ibn Ezra says, Kishayich is matter-of-factly. Not that he did something. Matter-of-factly, the anger, the emotion subsided. So when there's anger, a person could do something which is detrimental to themselves, but they're, they're so angry it doesn't matter. When the, all the anger is gone, and that takes take some time, when all the emotion dissipates, so what are you left with? There's, you don't have a way to defend it anymore. You, you're angry, you, become, you, become, you just feel empty, you feel sad. And that's what, that's what happened to Ahasuerus. Zohar as Vashti, the Ibn Ezra says, he started to verbalize this. It wasn't just in a, he told people, oh yeah, I miss Vashti, what did I do? Vigitachani says, Shazachar es Yafya, that he remembered also her beauty. And that's why it says, Ve'esasher asasa. Very interesting thing the Ibn Ezra says. The Pasuk, the verse says, Zohar et Vashti, he remembered Vashti, Ve'et asher asata, and what she did. So what did he remember? Ibn Ezra says, that's probably what Rashi means. He remembered her first. What did her? Remembered her beauty. The second thing is he remembered what she did. And then finally, he remembered the decree that he had brought upon her. And, and now he's not happy. He's not happy anymore. Now the, the Medrash Rabbah says, in the name of Rabbi Yechanan, that all of those years, from when she was killed, until Esther came, his anger didn't dissipate. He was in a foul mood. He was angry, he was frustrated, and he was unhappy. But they asked Rabbi Yechanan, it says here, that the anger subsided before Esther came. So how could you say that his anger didn't subside until Esther came? So Amr Lahu, he said to them, He said, it doesn't say subsided. It says subsiding. Subsiding. His full, intense emotion began to die down. So he remembered Vashti. Was he in a good mood? No. Until Esther joined him, he was not in a good mood. So he was still angry. It was a lingering anger, but it was no longer an active anger. And this, is, this, this took time. All right, so Ahasuerus uh, now is in a, pr- a pickle. He needs, he, needs, uh, he needs to entertain himself and uh, needs a queen. This is not good. So Pasuk Bey says that the young lads or the valets of the king, Mesharsav, who served him, they spoke up. And they said, The king should seek out beautiful young girls. Who gives this kind of advice? The Supreme Court? The Senate? <laughs> like, like, who... This is like Jerry Springer kind of advice. This is like ridiculous. Like, like really, like, who's giving the, who, who's running the king's office? A bunch of fishers. A bunch of lowlifes. The valets. <laughs> these, these guys, who knows what they do with themselves. They're the ones advising. That's how the king made it. He got rid of all the nobility. He made sure that the intelligentsia was silenced, or according to the Medrash, the, the Targum Sheni, he killed them. The Targum Sheni says he decided to take out his anger, not at Memuchan, 
but at the other courtiers. He said, why didn't you stop me from doing this? Off at your heads too. So in the meantime, he purged the society of the upper echelons of the, of the intelligentsia, which by the way is textbook. That's what Mao Zedong did, and that's what Stalin did, and that's what Hitler did. All dictators do the same thing. The dictators get rid of people who could lead any kind of resistance. In order to lead resistance, somebody has to hammer the people together. You need somebody with leadership qualities. Usually those are either going to be people of high intellect or of high charisma or people who are very, if not very smart, book smart, but they're EQ. They're very intuitive. They understand the nature. He got rid of those people. That's what they always used to do. They arrested the poets. They would arrest the, 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 the playwrights. They would arrest the professors. They would arrest the, the laureates. People who take all these people, get rid of them. What did the Germans do? They came to Poland. They massacred like a thousand of the Polish nobility overnight in the forest. Nobody knew what happened to them. And that way, they subjugated. They, called, they considered the Poles serfs, lowlifes, secondary, not, not bad enough to be killed. That was special for the Jews. But they considered the second-class second people. Once they got rid of the smart ones, they were able to subjugate them. Achashverus says the, the Targum did the same thing. He gets rid of anybody who is half-intelligent. He, he, he basically purged the ranks, and whoever was left was terrified to say anything. So who's going to give advice to the king now? Who's going to give advice? <laughs> the lowlifes, the riffraff, the valets were hanging around with him. They said, hey, why don't you make a beauty contest? And Ahasuerus, the behemoth, says, oh, a beauty contest. Now we're talking. This is diplomacy. This is, this is uh, politics at its best. I mean, you're talking about a queen. Sure, a beauty contest. I mean, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but that's, that's, that's what happened. Does he say that sometimes fact is stranger than fiction? This actually happened. Now, people didn't want to come. Why? Because what happens if you're not the queen? First of all, you may get killed. <laughs> Second of all, you have no life. The king is not going to let people like that go back into society and then have an interview with, with all the magazines and tell them what Ahasuerus did. It's not going to look good for the king. So anybody who was powerful had beautiful daughters, was hiding their daughters. Everybody was afraid of playing Russian roulette over here. So the king made it law. <laughs> no choice. What does he do? Verse 3, He established commissioners. This is, this is real, you know, very highly intelligent government over here. You see an amazing society. We have a new office. No, not the office of religious freedom, not the office of human rights, not the office of crime prevention, the office of forcing the beautiful girls to come to the king. Commissioners. They have power, office, and all the promises of his kingdom. He doesn't know what kind of girl he wants. He doesn't know what color he wants. Doesn't know, all colors, all kinds. Bring from every place. He's collecting the beauties from 127 provinces, from three continents. They all have to come together. Every beautiful girl is going to come to Shushan. And there, they're going to be a base on Noshim, especially Harem, which is going to be a Yad Hege Sris HaMelech, which will be under the custody of Hege, who is the king's chamberlain, but really it's called a eunuch. Eunuch was a fellow who wasn't capable of having any such desires anymore because he had been sterilized. So the kings would do this. They would take some very handsome men, they would sterilize them, and didn't have to be worried about them uh, cheating on the woman, then everything was fine. This was common, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> had eunuchs. Every, every, every king did this. So they took this, uh, he would be under the eunuch's control, so the Hashverosh didn't trust the guy. <laughs> a bunch of beautiful women under his control. That's not a good idea, right? So he's, don't worry, he took care of that. 
And he's Shaman Anashim. He watches the woman. And he gives them with all kinds of cosmetics. All right, so what's going on over here? Let's take a look in the Mepharshim. Um, we'll start with Rashi. The king sets up the uh, commissioners, offices. If he's going to send officers from Shushan, they're going to come to a foreign country. It is a foreign country. It's 127 provinces. How are they going to know who the beautiful girls are? You need, you need intelligence. I'm not intelligence. Like, you need to have somebody who knows what's going on. Counterintelligence. Yeah, so what was he using the, the Secret Service for? Not to just find out who was against him or who was going to revolt against him. The Secret Service was ferreting out the beautiful girls, many of whom went into hiding. But that was illegal. And who did he get to find the beautiful girls? He got locals. They knew who the beautiful girls were. So you know the beautiful girls. You go gather these beautiful girls. He empowered them. He gave them an office. Some of these people were only too happy all of a sudden to have power. They were commissioners. And they had this big job to do. <laughs> and that's what they did. They gathered all these women together into the capital city, the new capital city as we learned, called Shushan. Tamru Kehen. It's not a common word. So Rashi says, These are things that kind of, that cleanse, that clean. This is a, a, a pasuk that's talking about vessels in the Beis Amigdash that have to be sterilized or purged. In other words, um, the whole idea of these cosmetics was to bring forth the, the natural beauty that sometimes gets lost because of living itself. So he wanted to kind of make the to the skin as clean and as fresh, you know, think exfoliate and oil of oive and all that stuff like that. Shemen Arev, this kind of like a very <laughs> thick oil. Mini Samonim, Ubsamim, Hametadrim, Umaadin, things which cleanse, which purify and, uh, and soften the skin. So, uh, no, no, not reference. The Tamrukehen is a, that's what it means. We, we would translate it as cosmetics. But it wasn't, it wasn't superficial cosmetics. Because superficial cosmetics, how long does it take to make up a girl? Go to the best makeup artist in the world. An hour, two hours, how did it take? He had them pickling in this oil for months, this Meshuggah. Why? Because <laughs> this was like a whole, this was like a whole beauty process, right? He had to like exfoliate and take out all the pores and cleanse the skin. You know, this is like going to a makeup artist versus going to one of those like, you know, health uh, spas. But he put them for months in a spa, right? This guy was such a baltaive. He was such a, such a maniac that, that, you know, he needed... And the best possible, the, the beautiful, most beautiful girls in the most beautiful way possible for showtime, for the time they would spend with this crazy man. This, uh, by the way, there's recent reports now that Gaddafi, he used to push it, if you go and speak somewhere, if you saw a girl who he was attracted to, he would have her arrested. He had Pashat a prison with hundreds of girls and boys that he would rape and sodomize. Horrible stuff. Horrible. That now the, not only now it's coming out. I mean, he was a little more gentle about it, Because <laughs> he wanted the girl to be his queen. He couldn't just abuse her and then expect her to be a queen, right? A little more. No, they went to visit him. Everybody had a night with the king. And if he could remember the name the next morning, we learn, then they had a chance. Only he had to remember the name. 
That was the deal. If he couldn't say, couldn't say number 77, 77, that didn't work. If he couldn't remember her name, she wasn't worth remembering. And if he would call her name, and he would say, I want this girl back, oh, then we know that we're on to something. This is, this is a royal. This is, this is going to be a queen. Which, by the way, all boils down to who? Everything revolves around this megalomaniac Ahasuerus again. He's the center of the universe. The queen is not chosen for any other virtue than Ahasuerus liked her. That, that's it. So that's, that's, uh, that, that, that's what Rashi says. Uh, Ibn Ezra says something similar. Tamruki Enes says, Tamarik Barai, to, to, to exfoliate, to cleanse, um, to cleanse them. That's, that was the idea of these cosmetics. Tamrukehen. The Gemara Megillah waxes on about how this guy was like a lunatic, how, how, how ridiculous his behavior was, how embarrassing his behavior was, and, and uh, how, <laughs> how he got away with this. It was like it was an unbelievable thing. A guy was in charge of a woman. Yes, I, I'm sure he had the you know, makeup artist and whatever his, you know. I'm sure he, they knew exactly what they had to do. I, I, I'll leave it to them. I mean, not everybody could have a spell. Now, remember, he, he he wanted Vashti for her beauty. That was the whole thing, right? The whole Vashti beauty. And now he ended up executing her for her beauty because she was vain, because she didn't want to appear. And now, what is he looking for again? <laughs> beauty again, like the whole thing is a little bit convoluted. Um, it's, it says in the Medrash that Achashverosh had a portrait above his bed of Vashti, and probably wasn't wearing very much. And um, apparently, he would see that picture, and he would remember that she refused to appear that way for everybody, and he would become very sad that he lost his beauty until Esther came. When Esther came, then he had a portrait made of Esther and. He, he changed his bedroom and everything was fine afterwards. He didn't have any, any issues. Now, and, and it's very interesting. You see over here that the wise men are not mentioned, as, a, as I said, at all. It's now his valets, right? Everybody's gone. So the Malbum has an amazing take on this. <laughs> Malbum says like this. He said, you have to understand that when the king remembered Vashti, he also, he also had a problem. He had an issue over here. He said, the, he, he, he was thinking like this. I'm going to get another queen, because I need to have a queen, but I'm going to have trouble again from her. What if she will disobey me? So he was like caught between a rock and a hard spot. He didn't know which way to go. He remembered her beauty, and he said, how am I ever going to find a, a woman like this? She was so beautiful. But then he says, Zohar Esasher First thing is, he remembered her beauty. He longed for another beauty. Then he remembered that she disobeyed him. He said, I'll have somebody else. She's also going to disobey me. And then, he was even more afraid because he said, he knew himself. He said, she'll disobey me. And what will I do? I'll have her killed again. He said, I'm going to be back in the same situation. That's how Malbam breaks up the Pasuk. He says, Zohar Esvashti. Remembered her beauty. So he wanted a new king. But then, he said, I can't have a new queen. Do you remember what he did? 
And then he said, you remember what he did? It's going to be a, a repetitive thing. So what did the valets say? They, they had a, a brilliant idea for him. They said the whole problem with Vashti was that she was high birth. She was nobility. She thought she's a somebody. All you need to do is get a woman who is a nobody. She'll never have the chutzpah to open her mouth. All she'll have is beauty, no brains. All you want is beauty. You, you'll elevate her because of her beauty only. She'll understand that she doesn't please you. It's over. He says, oh, this is brilliant. He says, I'm not going to go looking for a, a noble woman. I'm not going to go looking for somebody of high birth, somebody to give me trouble. He said, this is a perfect situation. Now, interestingly enough, he forces, he has to force the people because everybody's terrified of this guy. As much as they're supporting him, they're also terrified. Nobody wants to send a daughter into this. And therefore he says, regardless of, of, of who's going to come, if she's going to find favor in the king's eye. So this is it. That's all. She doesn't need anything else. She will not be appointed by virtue of anything that could possibly stand in the way of Ahasuerus' greatness and of Ahasuerus' power. That's the calculation that he makes. And uh, at this point, he doesn't need advice from any nobility because which noble, a smart person would give him such crazy advice. But for his purposes, his advice works very well. Besides the fact that it's very embarrassing, it's totally inappropriate. He says, this is great. This is great. I have my lusts and desires. They'll be fulfilled. I need to look presidential with a beauty next to me. I'll have a beauty. She'll never open her mouth. She'll never bother me. I can be a tyrant. I can go on living the way I live. I don't have to worry about flying off the handle and killing her because she'll be afraid to do anything like that. Why does he need a wife? Why can't he just... It doesn't look good. You know, king has to have a queen. He's a king can't just have uh, consorts around him. I'm sure he was entertaining himself in the meantime, but it didn't, didn't look good. Actually, the Medrash says that he promised the people who didn't want to send the daughters, don't worry, I'm going to marry them all, he said. I'll have a harem. They're all going to be my wives. Just one is going to be the queen. So Ahasuerus probably kept himself busy with a lot of people. He was, uh, you think he was satisfied with one queen? He was a very active king. He was very busy. And he did all kinds of things. But Esther was the queen. The other woman there, they didn't have any power at all. Esther was the only one who had a position. Position, she's a queen. This is a queen. That, that's the only thing that could be an issue. So that's why Ahasuerus had to be really careful. So all of this sets the stage for what's, what's going to happen in the future. Now we understand how everything's going to unfold. The one who he's going to find favor in his eyes, she will be the queen instead of Vashti. So the Mepharshim say, she will be the queen. He'll marry all the other ones, she will be the queen. Ahasuerus liked this very much. He said, this is a great suggestion. It pleases me. He set it into motion. And so, the Persian Empire was roiled with this unbelievable edict. Offices were set up everywhere. All the pretty girls were taken away. And as they say in French, the whole uh, kingdom <laughs> has the search for a new queen unfolded. Now, at this point... The Megillah interrupts, and everybody says out loud, we talk about Ish Yehudi. Now we're going to suddenly talk about a Jew. His name is Mordechai. We start to introduce new characters, and the plot of the story of Purim is going to begin to develop. But that, Amir Hashem, we'll continue next week.